My mother was a weaver, and throughout my childhood, I watched her develop rural credit programs, microfinance projects with women all over the world who weave. Weaving is such imaginative and hopeful work. One has to add separate and diverse threads with precision and care while keeping the larger patterns in mind. Most of the motifs of the ikat and other woven fabrics that her organizations and the women represented were about community. These were textiles worn by healers or wedding cloths to bind families together. Soul boat motifs honored departed ancestors and trees of life represented the journey from birth to death. From time to time, I look forward to coming into the studio and sharing about the work that's being done in frontline communities everywhere, what I'm discovering, what excites and energizes me. And lately, I've been thinking a lot about the threads that keep us all connected as one fabric through our challenging but soulful work as peace builders. When you examine the core values, principles, and ethos behind each of the organizations, we are all about taking action and understanding the needs, but also the strengths and gifts of frontline communities. We are about finding and identifying community source solutions. We are about uplifting voices that haven't been heard or who have not been invited into the room. We are about respectfully nurturing the next generations and amplifying the many gifts and aspirations of young peace builders, all the while using every resource at our disposal to reach our base, expand our impact, and deliver on our commitments to positive peace building, utilizing a variety of methods, pathways, and tools, some of which I hope we can get into during this hour that we have together. Not too long ago, I sat down with Lynn Meheula at Google for a discussion entitled Rebranding Peace for the 21st Century. Now, during this conversation, I shared a lot about what peacebuilding means to me, the active communal nature of it, the need for positive peacebuilding, which is about relationship and movement building, social and restorative justice. The conversation also served as an opportunity to introduce the work that goes on behind the scenes every day in the worlds of three nonprofits that I've had the honor and pleasure of co-founding. Today, it brings me so much joy to invite my friends and colleagues into the conversation to deepen our understanding of and our commitment to peace building that is complex and intersectional. I want to build upon some of the ideas that we've shared and to layer in their perspectives and experiences working on the front lines of peace building. The adventures, the inspiration that fuels our foundational commitments to rebranding peace will hopefully inform and inspire you, our audience. So please say hello to Scott Nishimoto, Executive Director of Seeds of Peace. Hi. We have Dr. Keloha Fox, who's the President of the Institute for Climate and Peace. And here, visiting us from the East Coast, we have our executive directors of the Peace Studio, Thomas West and Mariano Avila. So great to be here with you, Maya. It's lovely to be here. Let's explore some of the foundational concepts that ground our work and help us to complicate our understandings of positive peace building, as well as peel back the layers and examine the multidimensionality of today's peace movements. Let me start by sharing our work at Seeds of Peace. Our name 
Seeds of Peace with a C, C-E-E-D-S, stems from the idea of planting seeds, strategies, and tools for peace-building leadership in action, utilizing the characters and qualities, beginning with the letter C, courage, critical thinking, compassion, conflict resolution, commitment, collaboration, and connection. We teach these, we model these C's, and we work to equip others with the tools, confidence, and commitment to doing the same. Scott, we'd love to hear more about where Seeds has been, where we are now, and what you're excited about. So we were founded about a decade ago, and I often find myself comparing our journey as an organization to the growth of a little human. Um, the metaphor really resonates with me as a parent. So in our newborn phase 10 years ago, we began with a single peace-building workshop that Maya and Carrie led. And while I wasn't there at that time, I think that's when our community really developed a real special love and connection to seeds that carries on to today. In our toddler years, this workshop series grew across Oahu to Hawaii Island, bringing together thousands of educators, parents, nonprofit leaders, judges, artists, creatives. And we started exploring new efforts. So we had youth cohorts starting where we brought together youth to hold space and share their voice and organize and be activists and peace builders. We started listening more and responding to the needs of our community and started designing programming accordingly. Um, and as an organization, like a toddler who I have right now, um, we really started finding our identity and, and finding our voice as well. And now I feel like we're kind of in our elementary school years. Um, as an org, we have new struggles and stresses that didn't exist before. Um, we have a staff of eight and 17 contractors who we need to take care of and raise money for. We have new partnerships and new communities that we need to nurture um, as we're being relied upon a little bit more. We also have new opportunities. Um, and today we're, we're focusing a lot on putting together the conditions in place so our community can commit to being peace builders. When I think about where SEEDS has been, where we are now in the future, where we're going with our incredible alumni base, and, and as we reach across the islands, but also across the globe, I am you know, really motivated and excited by all of the action plans that have been implemented, all of the young people who have stepped into roles of leadership. I'm excited by the various community projects that uh, have been tailored for new communities, that have been scaffolded for new purpose. Uh, so it's really important, um, the work that SEEDS is doing in this current phase to embolden and um, enliven the capacities of each individual and community. The aggregation of a lot of individuals acting together and bringing their talents, networks, interests, ideas and resources to the table. Each one regarding themselves as a conduit and vessel towards the community changes they wish to see uh, in the world. A couple quick examples of the work that I'm personally really excited about. Um, one thing is we're working really hard in partnership with the Hawaii After School Alliance and other partners to build capacity for Title I schools to become community schools. The community school model ensures that schools aren't just designed to be a place of academics between eight o'clock and two o'clock, but through strong partnerships and through a lot of trust with the community, um, the rich resources and knowledge that community orgs and health centers and parents can provide, we can ensure that students' basic needs are met so they can thrive as students and as peace builders. 
Um, so the best example I can give is that if a child is coming to school hungry, let's count on these strong partnerships with food pantries and farms and health centers to provide for this child instead of expecting teachers to reach into their own pockets and feeding children like they're so used to doing. So that's one thing I'm really excited about right now. Another exciting example of seeds putting the conditions in place for peace building to happen is our Hawaii Positive Engagement Project, um, which is in partnership with UH Manoa. In this effort, we're actually granting funds to Native Hawaiian educators and parents, as well as educators who are serving Native Hawaiian students to um, work on their own well-being. So if teachers feel like they're burnt out um, and they need some stress relief in their lives, if they need, a, for example, a yoga teacher to come in every Friday and run, run yoga sessions, we can actually fund that work and help them to develop these rich action plans around, around self-care. And the logic is that if our teachers aren't feeling that sense of peace within and they don't feel like they are being cared for, then how can we really expect them to do a great job with our youth, right? Yeah, those are two examples of, of the work that we're really excited about right now. Um, I can go on for an hour talking about all the other work, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. Back in 2016, I was really wanting to find a way uh, to benevolently or positively contribute to uh, the healing of the planet, to address the climate crisis. I was frustrated and felt disempowered and uncertain about how to contribute my energies. And I got together with my dear friend, Maxine Burkett, who was at the time an environmental law professor and scholar at the Richardson Law School here at UH Manoa. And we realized that our disciplines really needed to inform one another that by working at the intersection of climate at peace, of stewardship and justice, our contribution to the climate crisis could consist of supporting communities and individuals from the places most impacted by the crisis. These are communities and individuals who have the most powerful solutions, but who are often ignored or considered not part of the conversation. They're often considered as sacrifice zones, they are neglected, and, and this is intolerable. Aloha ke aloha. I would love for you to share a little bit about the philosophies that drive our work at ICP and tell the audience how ICP is working together in partnership with communities to imagine po all the possibilities for addressing the myriad issues that have emerged as a result of the environmental crises. Perhaps help our audience to understand and get oriented uh, to the unique intersection of work at the juncture of peace and the climate crisis. ICP at Our Soul is a climate justice organization. We're weaving effective and inclusive processes that build peaceful and climate resilient futures from frontline communities right here in the Pacific Asia region and beyond globally. So what does that mean? For somebody like me, I live here on an island. I work on an island. I'm raising my family here on an island. This is where I rejuvenate. This is where I get my energy from. And this is also the place in which I'm deeply concerned about. Our oceanic community consists geographically of a largely dispersed population. There's nearly 2 million of us spread across 5 million square miles. Think about that. 5 million square miles in this Moana Nui Akea, the vast Pacific Ocean with limited Western capital for economic development and lacking 
the cultural and political realities in constant motion that are a part of decision-making conversations. In fact, most Americans know very little about Hawaii as our homeland and its importance to the United States. This often results in disempowering frontline work like ours, such as being erased from environmental and climate justice opportunities. Even situated of who we are, what the names of these places are called in present day, we can debatedly talk about this one state, three U.S. territories, and three freely associated states where ICP is birthed. Right here, what we refer to as a majority-minority area known for consistent in- and outbound migration due to treaties, acts of Congress, war, trust obligations stemming from past injustices and genocide. So peace, or the lack of it, is organic here at all times. It's constantly in motion with so many lessons for the world to do better by. So what are we doing at ICP? You talked about the threads and the weaving. We have three threads in our strategy. It's information, collaboration, and policy transformation. We're producing innovative interdisciplinary research on climate change impacts on peace building, and conversely, the capacity for peace-building processes to create just and enduring solutions to climate change that center the human, the family, and community experience. We're developing programs and policies that facilitate real-world solutions for the general public, as well as decision-makers in public, private, and independent sectors to take action by urgently, well beyond 2030 or 2050 or any goal targets you might hear by to take action right now. We are training and learning from impacted stakeholders and young leaders. We're evolving what climate impacts look like, how those are defined, and then we're crafting and curating efforts to build peace. We're facilitating difficult dialogues and we're facilitating collaboration through creativity, through joy, through laughter, hope, and definitely a lot of love and a lot of aloha. A lot of that healing happens, I think, through storytelling, changing the story of community and self, helping others to uh, tell the stories of their space, of their land, of their cultures, um, in ways that build empathy and urge us towards a reliance on one another and caring and nurturing of one another. The Peace Studio is a place of storytelling and movement building and helps us to understand the impact that stories can have on influencing culture and mindset and lifting up peace building identity. I co-founded the Peace Studio a few years ago with my literary agent, Jennifer Gates, and her colleague, Todd Schuster. We wanted to support artists and creatives to become peace builders and movement builders in their own communities, but also to connect across the continent. The Peace Studio is about growing restorative narratives, and it's now a burgeoning organization with a vibrant curriculum and core programming. Thomas, I'm curious, as an artist yourself, you're a very talented opera singer, and as our founding executive director, what is uh, your perspective on this notion that artists can and should be peace builders in our communities. So something I'm always chatting about with people learning about the Peace Studio for the first time is why we're so specific about developing artists and journalists as peace builders. 
as opposed to defining them as activists or social impact leaders or whatever other terminology you might want to use that is similar. And I think the answer is that I see all of these other terms as falling short of what peacebuilding denotes. To me, peace, and I think in the way we define it at the Peace Studio, is just as much about how you show up in the world as it is about the actions that you take. And so when we talk about an artist as a peace builder, it's really encouraging them to see the power that they hold in their hands with the stories that they tell. If they start internally, if they find peace within themselves, if they learn to have practices of self-care, our belief is that the work that they will create will be different. And I think it's sort of the, you know, peace to me is sort of this combination of love and justice combined. Um, it's realizing that in this time of great divisiveness, that those who tell stories have a responsibility to help society feel a sense of hope. Whatever the issue is that you care about, stories matter to that issue. And the way that you tell that story matters. And, uh, and I think that's why we, we talk about artists peace builders specifically. Mm, thank you. And Mariano, in trying to foster this culture of peace that Thomas is talking about, how does the Peace Studio sort of draw a line between its two audiences or connect them, artists and journalists? To draw a line between artists and journalists, I would say they're storytellers. And whether you're trying to tell a climate story or talking about what's available in your backyard, um, you have to hear a story. We have uh, journalists who are factual storytellers and artists who are interpretive or creative storytellers. For the journalists, for example, when you look at military spending, where $770 billion worth of, of uh, spending, which is about combined the next six countries, that story alone needs to be examined carefully. If journalists don't tell you why that matters and how that impacts our own internal culture, where are you gonna hear it? If we cover a school shooting, which are unfortunately more and more of them every day, we only focus on, on the violence, we're just perpetuating that culture. If we can talk about the resilience of the communities, if we can talk about some of the initiatives that people are putting together to counteract some of these horrible things, now we're building peace in different ways. If we can influence these two groups of storytellers that are the most influential uh, sources of cultural artifacts for American society, then we believe we can foster a culture of peace in America. When we talk about building a culture of peace and encouraging storytellers to work in this way, it's asking artists and journalists to ask themselves the question, how are you gonna show up when you tell your stories or you create your art? How are you going to realize the power that you hold in your hands when you create work? If artists and journalists aren't thinking about that, then we aren't going, then I think all the other challenges that we're facing right now are gonna be way harder for us to move towards because we are in a time where it feels like we're in our silos and we're shouting at the wind sometimes. And, and it's hard to think about how we're going to work together. And we have to work together across all different kinds of geographies and backgrounds and disciplines and experiences and cultures. And I think artists and journalists, to me, are the, kind of the front lines of that work. When I go into a classroom to talk to journalists, I say, you know, data turns into stories stories turn into narratives. You have to res take responsibility for the narratives that your work contours in society. I believe the Peace Studio is 
offering the opportunity for storytellers to look at their work through that lens and saying, what impact am I having in society? From the perspective of the listener, the watcher, the learner, the community member, I know that the work that is being done by the journalists and artists who are in the Peace Studio community enables a sense of optimism. It's an antidote to grief. It helps uh, the listener to feel activated in their own spaces. So I'm grateful for that. I want to talk a little more about this sort of collective energy that we're cultivating. I love that ICP is operated by mothers working alongside core folks of young people, millennials, Gen Z. I think this is true of all of the organizations here, you know, and as young leaders, you know, what does it mean that we truly respect and reverence uh, young people in these peace building efforts? I love that we're talking about our identities and how those energies show up in the work. We are a collective here of three nonprofit organizations run by young people under the age of 40. I think that that's tremendous. And we are not just tinkering around. We're actually discussing some of the greatest barriers that our generation and generations that have come before us have faced. And we're doing so actively alongside young people. For us at ICP, women and young people are really essential to the lived work experience, right? So much has changed during the pandemic in the way that we even operate in this identity of a career trajectory, right? Especially for those of us who have been trained and mentored in the STEM fields. Experiences that we endure as people no longer have to be set aside just as much as we don't have to set aside the experiences of who we are as organizational leaders. They're not separate for our generation. They're actually whole. We welcome our whole selves when we step up to action to do this work. But did you know that less than 0.2% of global philanthropy goes toward women-led environmental action? We know that peace agreements that involve women are 35% more likely to last at least 15 years. That's what we want. We want these agreements. We want reconciliation. We want reparations that last generations. And so if we do so by peace building in nonprofit organizations, we think through facts and data, science, storytelling, this new narrative ensures that we're ready to respond to all of the deniers about the power of this work and who should lead it and who should not be left behind, who should be resourced, and how we should be resourced for many, many years to come in all of the beautiful work that we can create. That's beautiful. Okay. So then Scott. Yeah, so quick story. I was recently asked to submit a professional bio for a talk that I had to give. And I started my bio off with, Scott Nishimoto is a dad, neighbor, and bedtime storyteller. Um, Scott also happens to be the executive director of Seeds of Peace. And I remember the event organizer gave me a little pushback for that bio. I guess he didn't think it sounded professional enough. Um, but the reality is that my identity as a dad and as a neighbor and as a bedtime storyteller is so intertwined with my job that those identities have become who I am as a professional as well. I have a five-year-old daughter named Ellie and a one-year-old son named Rui. And actually, I'm really glad that Keloha is sitting here at the table with us because Several years ago, she, along with her colleagues at OHA at the time, 
they released a study um, which revealed quite a bit, but one of the statistics that really stuck out to me was that 24% of Native Hawaiian female high school students have seriously considered attempting suicide. And as I look at my daughter, who is a Native Hawaiian female who will someday be in high school, I'm already really scared for her and her peers. And I know that this is just a statistic and it's not my daughter's fate, it's just a statistic. But if we don't make some real significant changes, it very well could be her fate. And if not her, then the fate of many of her peers. Um, so for me, this, this real urgency to build peace in our homes, our schools, and our communities, um, this urgency to do better when it comes to social-emotional learning in schools, this urgency to address, address bullying, discrimination, hate, the need for some to feel control or power over others, um, these urgencies are very, very real to me. They're, they're in my home. So I feel very fortunate that for at least eight hours a day, I'm doing my part to build a better community for this next generation to step into. We are uplifting SEL practices in schools. We're teaching trauma-informed care for public school educators. We're making sure that youth have all the basic needs they, they need to survive and thrive. Um, and then when I'm not working, I'm trying to be as present as possible as a dad to my two little ones, which I think is equally important work. In the middle of the pandemic, my then seven-year-old daughter looked at me and said, I know, Daddy, that you're doing a lot of things for other communities, communities that don't have access to media, but what are you doing for the planet? And at the time, I realized I had absolutely nothing for her. I've been a you know, community engagement kind of journalist, never really focused on environmental stories because uh, it was just not my beat. And, and so I had to figure out how I was going to get involved. And I wound up uh, writing a grant for an environmental manufacturer. But what I've done since has helped me kind of bridge some of the things that I have done in my career together, which was... I did about seven years of peace work. I've been a journalist. I have an MFA. And all of these things have been kind of at odds at different times. And the peace studio is a confluence of all three. And I never thought I'd be able to do all of them in one place. And it's, it's wonderful to be able to not just be able to, to have a confluence of journalism, art, and peace, but also to now be in, in league with environmental and you know, educational organizations that are equally... Uh, committed to the framework that we share, which is peace. And for me, it was really based on my background as an artist and seeing so many of my colleagues uh, right when I was graduating from college burning out because they weren't given the sort of practical skills of how to learn how to take care of themselves, how to, um, how to think about their art in a non-traditional way, that there's not just one path to be an artist, but you can have impact in a multitude of ways. And the Peace Studio really presented an opportunity to imagine, you know, what would it look like if artists were given the resources and tools that they needed to create the change they wish to see in the world. And, and I don't think that's something that's being taught in schools. I don't think that that's the priority. You know, there's a, it's a beautiful thing to work really hard on your craft and to become a great cellist or a great filmmaker or a great singer. But 
then you have to go do something with that. We care about you as a human being and how you are taking care of yourself and how you are showing up in the world. And we imagine that the, the, the work that you create will ultimately um, be greater, have more impact if you start there. What are the challenges of peace building, but also the opportunities that you see ahead? We constantly at the Institute for Climate and Peace receive inquiries and asks from students in research-based public universities just like this from all across the U.S. Um, and in the Pacific region looking for something more and looking for a gap to be filled that they don't yet know what that might be. And I think sometimes in our daily work, and, and sometimes it's eight hours, Scott, and, and sometimes feels like 80. Sometimes in that work, I feel that the Institute for Climate and Peace, for example, is not so much an institute. She's still an idea. And we're going to grow with her. And we're going to allow her to become exactly what you had described of um, what comes next for artists, what comes next for storytellers. Um, I think we're, we're still describing what can come next for those that are deeply committed about climate action that is still being left to the side and still being abandoned. So what I think that means for us is there's a tremendous opportunity to fill a void that right now is not singing a song in rhythm or in harmony with nearly enough people yet. Recently, I was explaining to a friend what I do at Seeds, and his response was, wow, that sounds really ambitious. Um, do you really think we're going to achieve peace in our lives? And I think that's kind of a common response to a lot of the work that we do, especially when you put peace in our name. People think world peace and the end of all wars and the end of all violence. And if you put it that way, peace does sound like a very difficult, ambitious goal, um, maybe out of reach to many. But then when I think about these everyday actions to build peace, it doesn't sound quite as difficult. Um, it sounds a little more accessible, I guess you could say. And, you know, peace building can be a mass community organizing and, and changing laws and systemic change, but it can also be much smaller. One of the things that's exciting for me right now um, is we are building a partnership with public media to be able to take this framework of restorative narrative into every newsroom that wants it in NPR and PBS stations across the country. That's really, really exciting to me because it signals the possibility that there will be a focus on not just what's negative and immediate in our society, but what is restorative and long-lasting. So that's exciting to me. I think one of the challenges, um, as Scott was just talking about, is allowing people to see what is immediately or tangibly peaceful in your own life. Two of the more conflictive uh, spaces that I've ever been was working with nonviolent peace uh, activists in Israel and Palestine and working with spiritual leaders, trying to build a peace in Guatemala between the MS-13 and the 18th Street gangs. And in both of them, what I realized is, sure, you have warring parties, sure, you have extreme uh, acts of violence and extreme ideologies, the vast majority of the people are the people caught in the middle who just want to get on with their life. And for them, 
being able to influence even one of these more extreme people to come a little closer could save hundreds of lives. And I see that work of, of, of planting seeds, of building communities, and of creating narratives that restore society as crucial to these macro-level conflicts that we think we can't get our minds around. So I think we, we have good work to do, but it's a challenge to communicate that to people who think they have no place in it. I love the positive peace-building framework because to me it says that peace is daily ongoing work. When you think about peace in terms of something that we have to be building every day, um, it creates a sense of, of urgency. We need to be actively, proactively building peace. The efforts that Kayla Han Scott are leading um, to think about what could be in five, 10 years as, as our programs reach more and more people, as we see these communities form. Um, and for us at Peace Studio to think about you know, thousands of artists and journalists working in this way um, working with such intention about how they tell stories and what that could mean for, for our culture. Thank you. Thank you all. My work is at the Matsunaga Institute for Peace and Conflict Resolution here at the University of Hawaii. We look at peace building in terms of mediation, negotiation, conflict transformation, indigenous peace, personal peace, um, human rights and policy for civil rights freedom of expression and discrimination, inclusion, protecting democracy, providing support to victims of violence, uh, post-traumatic growth, and much more. And all of these organizations here offer up a series of strategies, tools, and offer caring support to individuals in need, but also help us to think about defining beloved community. And I want us to close, perhaps, by um, asking for each of you to share your thoughts with our audience and to speak from your heart about why this work is important to you and whether you feel optimistic about the future of creating a more peaceful and just world. I'll start by saying, I think um, in my positionality as an indigenous woman, we have no other option than to be hopeful and to be positive about what is just beyond the horizon and what that voyage looks like that's right within our control, is within our grasp, and is inherently within all of the practices and skills and qualities and characteristics that we already possess. Yeah, most days I, I do feel optimistic. Um, I do think we're moving the needle. Um, that said, there's so much work to be done. I do look forward to a community where every school is a community school. Look forward to a community where every parent and every educator has the resources to work on their own well-being. Look forward to a community where every youth has the platform to be change makers and peace builders. And I also look forward to a community where every educator, parent, and community member launches peace-building action plans by coming through our workshops. Um, and that's just here in Hawaii. The, the world needs this as well. At SEEDS, we talk a lot about this ripple effect. And sure, we're a small org with a small staff and a small board, but I feel that with every teacher we work with, with every parent we work with, with every youth we work with, 
we start this new ripple. And that's exciting to me, um, knowing that these ripples are potentially endless and they're just going to keep on expanding. That tells me that, that we're going to get there someday. I totally agree, Scott. I think we too at Peace Studio talk a lot about that ripple effect and this notion that it starts with each individual artist and journalist that we support and then the work that they create impacts their community and reaches thousands and then millions and, and, and that's where movements are born. That's really the core of, of our theory of change. I think what gives me hope is when I have conversations with our artists and journalists, our fellows, our, our catalysts, and, and when I hear them say, the Peace Studio has given me permission to dream bigger than I ever thought was possible. And, and when I hear them feel like they, that a light has gone on and that they now are feeling restored, that they're feeling like they have the skills necessary to really use their lives and their art and their storytelling in the ways that they always wanted to, but just hadn't found the right outlet yet. And that's what keeps me going is, is every time I have that conversation, I say, wow, this is, this is worth, this is worth it. I would say I'm, I'm not generally an optimistic person and I don't see a lot of evidence for optimism, but I'm a very hopeful person and, and hope for me is an active word. And, and that's what I do. Well, I want to thank you all for being here. It's been so good to have our Brave Through community get to know you a bit. And um, listeners, each of you has an opportunity and an obligation to contribute and choose to participate right where you are, whatever your resources, whatever your age, um, wherever your community. We hope that you feel enriched and have found some inspiration in the work of these three organizations. The point is that as we see new obstacles before us, as we start to feel anxiety about the seemingly intractable problems all around us, we need to preserve the commitment to actions, large and small, to peace building goals, North Star and Near Star, to uh, activating our peace building identity and our upstander identity. Mahalo to our guests, Scott Nishimoto, Thomas West, Mariano Avila, and uh, Dr. Keloha Fox. And if you can close by just telling our listeners, what should they do? What is one thing they can do today um, and um, tomorrow that will improve their capacities to build peace in their own lives and communities. Just one thing. What's one thing our listeners can do for ICP or with ICP, Kayla? We're big proponents of active listening. I think that's something that each person hopefully can take away from how our three organizations are facilitating change to ensure that resources are equitable relationships are sound and communities are poised for peace. And it starts within each one of us. And we know that a collective culture of peace is possible with the Institute for Climate and Peace and Seeds of Peace and the Peace Studio, helping to steward the way active listening allows us to be right there beside you in that listening. I think with great listening, then we'll really begin to start weaving that work of resiliency. Just look for the gifts in everyone. Um, whether it's your kids, or your parents, or other community members, search for those gifts, identify them, 
and make sure those folks know that their gifts are being noticed. If you're the most interesting or the smartest person in the room, then you're in the wrong room. And if you just show up with that everywhere you go, understand that there's going to be someone that's got a great story to tell and that's going to be different from yours. That there's somebody that knows something that you don't and you have the humility to assume that about everybody. Uh, you'll find that it's easier to have peaceful relationships one-on-one. -on -one. This is not a macro piece, this is a micro piece. And, and, and that's a good place to start. Think about the stories that you read, the stories that you tell. All of us are storytellers in some form or fashion. And what we tell and what we listen to matters. Thank you so much to you, our Breakthrough listeners, and to everyone in the room. I am not the most interesting or smartest person in this room, and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful to learn from each of you, and thank you for being part of my beloved community. Join me for future conversations with really thoughtful, creative people who are helping us to wash our eyes and nourish a sense of possibility around difficult, social challenges. Thank you so much for listening. Please share and stay in the conversation.